0: This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is poet Katie Maya. Katie Maya is a writer and literary translator. Her award winning work has appeared in numerous literary publications, and she has received fellowship support from the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts and the Nebraska Arts Council. Sugar Work. Her first full-length book collection was the editor's choice for the 2020 Alice James Book Award. Originally from Atlanta, she now lives in Nebraska, where she is finishing a PhD in creative writing at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. Katie Meyer, welcome to Lives.
1: Hi, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to be selfish and start with a very personal love of mine, which is The Great British Baking Show.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) And I, I know the title of the book actually has intonations that are far more profound than British people baking in a competition. And so we'll get to that in a minute. But I wonder if I might just start by asking, what do you know about baking?
1: I love this question. I know some things about baking. I, I love to cook. I like to cook savory food before I love to bake, but I am very obsessed with a very specific chocolate chip cookie recipe. Uh, chocolate chip cookies are my favorite dessert. Um, and every now and then I get a wild hair to bake some immaculate cake. There, I don't know if you remember on the Great British Baking Show, I can't remember the season, but they made this green cake That it's not called a green cake, but that's what I'm going to call it. You had to like make the dye with spinach water and it it was there was pistachios in it. And anyway, um, yeah, I, I like I like to bake every now and then. And then it feels like I'm either just doing the chocolate chip cookie or I'm going full on out and doing like something I clearly have no business doing. I don't think that I'm a very precise person, which People would beg to differ because I'm a poet, Um, but I don't often feel precise, and I make silly errors. You know, like my grandparents once bought me tickets to see Sade in LA, and I had to drive there when I was living in California, and I I went the day before the concert was. You know, the concert was the next day. So I make little errors like this. So baking does feel like I'm walking uphill against my natural abilities, but... um,
0: so let me ask you about the title, sure. Sugar Work. Yes. It's also the title of the first poem in the collection. Yes. So I think there's something maybe important about that, and I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you titled the book, why you chose that title, and then we'll talk a little bit about that first poem.
1: Sure, yeah. So I, I was watching The Great British Baking Show, which I think you might have read somewhere, um, and the phrase Sugar Work, someone said it, and I was like oh my gosh that's the container for this project I'm working on at least for now and then it just stayed that way I started working on on this collection probably in 2013 and I maybe watched that show in 2015 when I was getting my MFA so that stayed with me and there's so much paratextual stuff about that title this book is about my uh, attempt to negotiate pleasure in a country that is gives you everything you want when you want it. So that was at the center, of course. And, and I think there was larger historical things at the center, too, like the actual, you know, how sugar made its way into the Americas through the Atlantic slave trade and stuff. And, and those are all in the background. But I think the way I understood pleasure and desire and sort of my own body was first and foremost through my mom, who I grew up with, um, mostly just me and her. Uh, yeah, and, and, the, and the first poem, I think, is an attempt to get at the way I understood the world before I really understood it. Um, and pleasure was a scary thing.
0: I think that um, a way to know you is to be invited to read this book And so I, in some ways, think that this first poem, Sugar Work, sets that up. And so I will ask you about who you are later in our conversation. But in some ways, I feel like talking about the book is a way of talking about who you are. Sure. So with that, um, there's a line in the end or a couple of lines at the end of Sugar Work um, where you write, I thought there was no safe amount of sugar. So I pretended to take none. And what I love about that is that you've already talked about how sugar in some ways is a a really troubled product uh, because of its history. It's um, also in some ways just a substitute for our desire of pleasure and instantaneous, um, you know, satiation. But I also like that you said that you pretended to take none, which suggests that notwithstanding all those dangers, you still did but, but hid that fact. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but it just really struck me that this poem sets out so much of what's in store for readers in the book.
1: Yeah, I, um, so that line originally um, was, I thought there was no safe amount of sugar, so I took none. Um, and I later, like when the book was already in production, um, I kept grappling with the ending and rhythmically I like the original. So I took none. There's a, the beats are harder and, um, but the more I thought about it and the more I talked with friends, close friends and, and artists that I collaborate with, I was trying to get at why I didn't feel like the poem was true, and if you can imagine, I mean, I wrote this book, and it's about me, uh, but it's my mom is huge in it, and I implicate her, and I implicate my dad, and uh, the one of the questions that went through my head a lot was, how are you implicating yourself? <laughs> um, one thing I've thought about in in our society is how women and specifically white women are shielded from understanding their own agency in a situation um, or choose to not understand their own agency. And I think that that pretense when I was a child and a teenager um, was about looking good. And looking good, and I don't mean like cute and pretty, but I mean looking like I had my stuff together, looking like I was in control. Um, meant that if I could pretend um, that I didn't want anything or that I didn't need anything, that I didn't have massive groaning desires, um, then I would well, I would be safe and people would give me what I want. And, you know, I, I grew up in the, the South and um, a lot of my family is very evangelical Christian and those evangelical Christians love a good girl. <laughs> so uh yeah. So I think, you know, there's an old stereotype of the woman, you know, being sort of good or like and virginal and pure or just monstrous and desirous. And and this book obviously speaks to that. So I, I don't know if that answers specifically your question, but I, I wanted to to talk about that switch I made at the end because it felt truer to my to the fact that. Whether or not I knew I was pretending, I was. And, and now I, I often ask myself, where in my life am I pretending?
0: I was going to talk about the book structure first, but I, we started talking about some of these themes. So I want to continue with that. And um, amongst the themes that are presented in the book, the mother-daughter relationship is key, uh, I think, as one of them. Um, but also ideas around uh, womanhood, uh, the body, Um, and uh, desire, divorce. Uh, Interestingly, water and uh, the sea and oceans come up a lot, so I I want to explore that. But you just mentioned one that I wanted to touch on perhaps first, which is about religion. And you talked about uh, your upbringing in the South. You've talked about um, an evangelical Christian context. And so religion does appear, but perhaps somewhat tangentially in the book. I'm, I'm not sure... But it does appear in some poems, and one is explicitly titled God. I'm wondering if you do have a particular relig- religious, uh, you know, spirituality, or if that perhaps is um, a challenge for you that, you that that is evident in what you wrestle with in, in your poems.
1: Yeah, I, I actually think my relationship to spirituality is the most— oh, not to spirituality, to religion, is the most fraught when I feel like I'm being asked to put language around faith. I, I got my undergrad degree in Spanish and theology, and I you know went to a, a private Christian liberal arts school that was very white, very evangelical. Um, my mom my mom never forced any of that stuff on me. Uh, my If my mom were here, she might say, I was a child of the 70s, you know, I I did what I wanted. She she wants you to feel good and happy and whatever makes you feel good and happy is what she wants. But I think because her life looked chaotic to me, I I think there were part, times when it was chaotic. I think it also looked chaotic because of the antithesis, the sort of Christian church making a monster out of people like my mom. And so I, I, I went to that, I fled to that in, in high school and, and in the beginning of college. But it very quickly became evident to me that I was bored with the question, who or what is God? Because the ultimate answer to that feels like we will not know <laughs> in this life. So, yeah, I think now, I, I mean, I would say if I were to pick a tradition, I would be in the Christian faith, you know, there are times I want, I decide I want to go to an Ash Wednesday service, or that I want to sing in church, but I don't feel obligated to the tenets of that faith in any way. I feel particularly sad, I think, when I feel disconnected from my family, um, not my mom, but other parts of my family, when they articulate what they think Christianity is, and I feel outside of that. But. Yeah, I'm happy to be a wanderer. Um, I don't, I don't, I I think I'm ultimately committed to poetry as a kind of religion and to art. Yeah.
0: You mentioned your mother and your father, and you do have a poem that's titled The Religion I've Made of My Mother, which in some ways suggests how you've rendered sacred or you investigate the sacredness of those relationships. One that sticks out to me is the poem Father, and he, for a variety of reasons, was quite absent in in your early life and and perhaps continues to be sure and in the poem, you refer to his holy goneness, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about how you've rendered sort of sacred those aspects of either the presence of people in your life but also the absence of perhaps what should be there,
1: yeah, I mean. This is one of those questions where it's like, do I want to talk about this? I think I do. My dad is ha, was absent a lot and is still absent in in any tangible sense. Like I don't think my father and I really know each other, although there are occasional there are moments where we communicate. Uh, yeah, I wonder if I don't see it as as I have any other option and that the not having a father and ha- you know not and having a a particular experience that involved a father who managed an addiction and is managing an addiction um that experience pushed me to a lot of emotional intensity at a young age um and i just to make peace with that emotional intensity i think i needed to embrace it you know and a lot of my favorite poets and feminist writers and womanist writers you know they talk about emotions and feeling being this this place of knowledge. So I think I'm just working that out in the book. But since the book has come out, um, and and toward the end of writing it, I've thought a lot more about the way this country and, and maybe the world sees people who are managing addictions. And um my mind is changing and my and my next my next book um or the project i'm working on right now is a lot about about that and i as much as i wanted to be honest about the fact that my dad was not close to me i was i was hesitant to um i didn't want to paint him in a bad light and and maybe the negotiation of this book is that i i don't get both there are, i mean my friend my friend's dad who read the book which was really sweet of him was like dang she really went after her dad in it you know and I think sure there's there's anger and there's um frustration but it's still from my perspective this is my view and I I have a line in the poem um how my dad made the world lighter where I say a vision can be a violence uh, no matter the view and I think about how my child's vision um the way I saw my dad the way I was taught to see my dad the way my mom sort of prepped me for your dad really loves you, but is incapable of loving you in these ways. Um, I don't know how that made him feel. I don't know if I need to know how that made him feel. Um, But I certainly know that there's a lot of shame around addiction in this country. And we've yet to manage anything with um, any kind of results that are promising. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. But
0: it certainly makes sense that I think the poems are powerful and speak very much to what you're sharing and thank you for sharing that and it does make sense in as regards you going through this process of interpreting your life and what that has meant for you. I was struck by a poem and I can't remember the exact title now but it's about a um, a text a, a, a recurrent text oh,
1: sure. yeah.
0: that your father is is sending. You talked a little bit about the stigma of addiction, and also the violence it can cause. There's a poem, Childhood, and there is the suggestion that your father steals your brother. Mm-hmm. And I felt that there was, I'm not even sure if I want to use the word anger, but I, I from you as a writer, this sense of, um, the violence that was done—not necessarily blaming anyone in particular—but what addiction has wrought, sure. and I couldn't help but wonder. It seems such powerful language that not only did addiction sort of rob you, as it were, of you know a father in your life, but also that that created the you know stealing of your sister brother relationship.
1: Sure.
0: And I don't know if you were angry when you were writing this and trying to exercise that
1: yeah i think i will be trying to exercise that for the rest of my life (laughs) and i definitely was angry and i definitely am still angry um about various things um i I think i can say this without without getting too choked up but since this book went into production not the i mean it's all kind of metaphor and in I t- take some creative license, but my—I have two half brothers. My stepmom and my dad were married till I was about 16, and um, my—I'm very close to my stepmom, and 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 w- am very close to my two half brothers. But we lost my youngest half brother to a fentanyl overdose um, almost three years ago. Uh, it'll be three years in October. So the rage—I um, think the rage in this book, in Sugar Work, is just barely on the surface. The rage now is different but and deeper and something I'm certainly contending with. I don't think there's a lot of life in the idea of blame. Well, I don't think there's a lot of life in the idea of blame, if that's your end point. But I, I was just telling my friend, I'm hoping that I can write some really ugly stuff. Uh, <laughs> because it gets ugly. I think about my dad a lot, and I think about the moments I found him beautiful in that poem where he's playing the drums. You know, my, my dad and my mom are both really creative people. My dad's a musician, and he built drums for a long time. And he's an amazing drummer, and he's an ama- amazing artist. And some of my favorite moments with him are just these minuscule points of connection where we're talking about music or talking about art. And And sometimes I grieve the what could have been. One of my favorite poets... Uh, Valsina Mort writes about this writer Alejandra Pisarnik from Argentina whose parents essentially fled um, Nazi Poland to and and so she essentially escaped a, a concentration camp by moving to Argentina and you see in this in her poems this haunting of what could have been she's constantly writing about this little dead girl um, but she's alive and I you know it's a very different situation but I There's a lot of grieving of what could have been, especially the artistic relationship between me and my dad. But I, I I, I think it's still there. And, you know, my dad will pass on, and we will all pass on. And I have an option to bring certain versions of him into the world in a more concrete way. And I would like to bring the drummer, the artist, the master musician into the world more through my work. But I know that that's not the whole picture. So yeah and it's you know that other poem you were mentioning um father sends adult child recurrent text message that poem was originally addict father sends adult child recurrent text message but i took addict out because i think we all deserve to be seen as complex as we really are and even father you know my dad's not just a father so yeah it's complex it's all very complex i hope to get angrier for the sake of putting anger in a good spot and not into generational trauma. <laughs> yeah, as I laugh after that. Anyway. <laughs>
0: well, let's follow that up then with, with three other great words. Sure. Um, you mentioned blame, guilt, and we also talked earlier about desire. And I think that sort of heady brew, this is not uh, a set of ingredients that you're going to find in the bake-off tent.
1: Uh, I don't know. Maybe
0: <laughs> maybe the competition gets rough yeah. off camera. Um, but that appears in, in, in this work too. And, and you're really wrestling with all these really um, incredibly uh, challenging and, and vulnerable themes. Where that shows up in one aspect, for instance, is I feel in you wrestling with... Um, the divorce that you write about from your ex-husband. It feels if I was your ex-husband, I I would feel quite happy about how you write about me in the book. (laughs) And also it seems in some ways that you think he was a good person, whatever the state of the relationship, but you're trying to work through your own sense of what that meant to you, making that choice. Sure. And the implications of those feelings, possibly, of blame, guilt, wrestling with the fact that this person is a fully-rounded human who you admire clearly for reasons that you express, but also you have to move on from. I found that a really interesting journey around blame and guilt. The question I want to ask you around that is, how cathartic was the writing of this book for you? In that sense, and also all the other senses that you were making sense of your experiences.
1: Yeah, it was very cathartic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that art, in the context of civilization, serves a lot of purposes, but it is certainly healing, especially when it's not fetishized by the the elite. And so, I really needed to write this book for myself, and I was always writing it for myself, in a sense. Yeah, I'm glad to. I'm glad to hear you say that. If you were my ex-husband, you wouldn't be mad. My my ex-husband he he calls me his former partner, which I think is such a a much nicer phrase than ex-husband. Um, but we are dear friends, and he is one of my life's greatest beloveds. Um, so I appreciate him so much, and he's an artist, so I think he gets it. I I still look back at my divorce, which was um, finalized in two thousand eighteen. Is that right? And then my brother died shortly after, so it catapulted us um I think, into a friendship we would have gotten to no matter what. but the death of my brother certainly made us uh faster, closer friends because um my former partner was very close to my brother, and I think that I still look at my divorce and that moment of decision as a real mystery to me, and I can say reasons why you know uh. That we got married young, that I had, I didn't fully know myself. That there was my own personal trauma and experience with sexual trauma involved, and all of those things are relatively true. Or, I mean, they are true, but they are not capital T the truth because it feels very mis- mysterious to me. And I, I made that decision because it is is what felt right. And I still, I don't feel guilt in anymore or like. I did something wrong, which I think was a lot of my initial feelings. But I do feel like what a strange thing that that's what I chose. And it does it does feel violent. I think it all worked out. Hopefully it's going to work out. Hopefully I don't end up alone as a spinster because <laughs> I might be like, I deserve this. But, no, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a mystery to me. That decision was a mystery to me, and I tried to to live into that mystery. It's It's not a mystery that I wanted to make, I think, you know, if I would have gone back, I would have just waited to get married. But you don't, none of us have that option.
0: The image of the spinster is the one you conjure. In the book, you reference yourself as the lover, and I wonder what was the creative inspiration behind you sort of assuming that identifier.
1: I think it was that I want to see myself as a lover, <laughs> um, and I I continue to work out this question of what what feels like love to me, and I you know I. I in my marriage and most of my life I believe love is a real action you hear that but it's a lot more mysterious to me so I yeah I just I wanted to at least affirm I think in this book that my instincts were coming from this place of desiring to be loved and to to love Um, but that doesn't always look like what we think yeah, and, you know, it, it is me, and it is a persona. And I remember thinking, like, I read—I can't remember what I read, but somewhere along the journey of writing this book, I was reading poems that felt really dramatic. And, um, you know, Louise Glick is one of my greatest inspirations, and I wouldn't say that she is a dramatic poet. She's restrained and austere. Um, and I wanted to to push against my love of austerity a little bit, and so I think the lover was also a choice of, like, just – be a telenovela for a second, be a soap opera, because sometimes that's what it feels like. Um, There are moments I look at that choice, and I'm like, "Eh, I don't know now, but.
0: (laughs) Before we talk a little bit about the structure of the book itself and the structure of the poems, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about that core relationship that we talked about, uh, which is between you and your mother, not least because I think that, in and of itself, how you examine that through numerous poems in the book demonstrates it's not just all sugar, that there is some sourness as well that make up that tapestry of a life lived closely with someone else. Um, In your email to me and Corny, you referenced how your mother had read this, and and you said that your mother was visiting you in June when your book arrived, and she sat outside on your porch with her giant glasses and read the whole thing in one sitting while smoking. (laughs) It was overwhelming and perfect then you both cried. (laughs) I, I wanted to share that because it felt like it encapsulated so much of that rich intensity and nuance of what it is to relate to another person so closely for your life. Could you talk a little bit more about what your upbringing was like, elements of your upbringing that that stand out, that really breathed life, as it were, into the poems that now make their way into Sugar Work, the book?
1: Yeah. You know, we talk about the holiness of honoring what's gone, and the, the holiness of honoring what's there is just like so much more messy. It's so, it's just easier to not be there, you know. <laughs> uh, my mom, my mom is, you know, my grandparents. So my maternal grandparents have just my mom, and then my mom just has me. So the four of us are really tight knit, and they're very special to me, and they're very supportive, and always have been. And I think even even over the last year, I've grown uh, in my perspective of of what it means to be a child and a mother. But my mom, the memories that are coming to mind now how bombastic and loud and funny my mom is um, to a point that certainly has felt like I cannot emotionally connect with her. Um, But I have this great sense of like, oh my gosh, one day, and this is in the book, like one day my mom is not gonna be here and I'm not sure I'll even know how to exist. And that's because she's been my cheerleader you know unequivocally no questions asked just just there the entire way I get choked up even thinking about it um yeah I think she has foresight about my potential that I still sometimes don't have um so I have you know like I just have I just have these memories of her doing like I would go away to Georgia for the summer after we moved to Las Vegas this was after I was nine and She would send me away to Georgia, and I would be with my dad and my stepmom and my half-brothers. And um, I would come home, and this was, like, five summers in a row. And she would have completely redone my room, like, painted the walls, new bedding. Like, sometimes to the point of, like, okay, why did you spend money on this? Like, but that sort of, um, yeah, she just – she wanted – she – And wants the world and sees the world as this fantastical, beautiful place that you can participate in. And so I would come home. I remember one summer it was like there were clouds everywhere and there was like in sync faces like in the clouds. And she had got me a whole new bedspread. And then the next summer it was like all red and black and zebra themed. And she wanted to create a world where I felt happy and fun, which can be really overwhelming if you don't feel that way. Um, But I think. Yeah, those memories stick with me. She's she's such a cheerleader. And I was very nervous for her to read this book. And there were things we went back and forth on in this book and things I took out that she wasn't, that she wanted out and things I left in that she didn't want me to leave in. And when she was reading it on my porch, she was just like, this is f- brilliant, you know. And 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 honestly, it's like, yeah, I think that her belief in me is, is a mother's belief. Like sometimes I don't want to talk to her about stuff because she'll believe in me too much. She won't fully see my weaknesses. Um. Yeah, I love her. I love that lady. She's a wild lady and she, she it is definitely my deepest, darkest, I don't, I don't know about the word dark, but my deepest, most curious and most difficult relationship. But I would, you know, I would go to battle for it no matter what.
0: You've talked about the stigma of addiction in America and I certainly understand that and that was as regards the situation for your father and and your and your brother obviously certainly not my judgment but perhaps a stigma around the work that your mother did and I don't know what the language would be because I'm not entirely sure but I understand there was um you know adult entertainment was a a part of that
1: yeah yeah you know we've talked about this we've gone round and round about it it was a small part of of our lives um, right before we moved to Las Vegas, it was a crucial part. I have key memories from that time that I think surprised my mom, that they're still there. Um, And I have no issue with that kind of work and and that she did that kind of work. I do think that work is a symptom of larger things in our culture that I, I don't fully understand. But seeing that work was certainly how I began to understand my body my female body um, my experience as a woman and the power dynamic at play that if you look a certain way you can get certain things but you know with certain costs and all, all of those power dynamics were fascinating to me at a young age um, it feels like now like they were about my mom because my mom was the figure my central figure in that experience but they're just markers now of larger conversations I'm interested in
0: there is a line in one poem where you make the explicit reference that um, you sometimes wish that your mother's boobs were now just yeah. the same shape as yours, like they used to be. Yeah, and and I think it obviously is a part of a much larger poem and an evocation of how you picture your mum. But at the same time, it speaks to those much bigger issues you've alluded to around what expectation society has about the body. Especially the female body,
1: yeah, and I think and i and I think about how we relate to one another that we we are more apt to relate to one another if we look like one another, um which you know seems a mountain uh a mountain of dissonance there um, yeah, that line's so interesting. I don't know what to think about that line anymore because my mom's very open about like what she has done to her face and her body and she's it's not a big deal to her I don't think I mean I think it's a big deal to feel good about she wants to feel good about herself and that we have to often do a lot to feel good about ourselves as women it's hard to be anyone but you know we have our particular journey and that makes me sad that we have to work so hard to feel good about our bodies I don't I don't want to work that hard To feel good about my body,
0: I just want to bake green cakes (laughs) and eat them.
1: Yeah, I just want to eat a lot of cake, but also like have a healthy heart rate and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. Female sexuality is so weird. I've talked about this with friends. You know, poetry is a kind of masking and a performance. And um, my mom is really good at a certain kind of performance, and she really enjoys that. So I think when there's joy at the center, I'm all for it.
0: I didn't ask this before you came, but would you read two or three poems?
1: Yeah. Um, um, So this is An Eight Count for Lovers on page 19 of Sugar Work. An Eight Count for Lovers. Let a lover into your poem and they'll redecorate your home, make you mashed potatoes, maybe pay your loans. Five, six, seven, eight, Most days I wake up, stretch dance in my underwear in front of the big mirror I bought after I left my husband. Most days I tell myself, you're a lover. God hovers around you. I touch my toes, lift and bend my arms. Hard to have a lover in a poem. Hard for the lover. I am hard for a lover with silver hair and shaking chairs and hands all on my rose, Most days I say this prayer. Love, love, please come love me. Touch your hands to my grooves. One, two, three, four. Let me be a yellow door. Five, six, seven, eight. Lover, wall, land, floor.
0: Thank you. I love that poem.
1: Me too, actually.
0: <laughs> I wonder, I was thinking about a poem about your mother and anyone that maybe speaks to you, given the centrality of that relationship that we talked about. But I'm also thinking about you too. Maybe I can be bold and ask for two then. Sure. Um, maybe one that you would select about your mother that perhaps captures your mood at the moment. And then I was wondering, uh, self-portrait. Sure. As a line seahorse. Um
1: Yeah, um, I'll read uh, Why I Look Just Like My Mother on page 44. Why I Look Just Like My Mother. A scar formed between her pelvis and belly button after the doctor cut her open to get me out. Then we left the place I was born to live in the desert. Dust billowed behind us, and I didn't see my relatives for 20 years. I tried to climb my mother adorned with freckles and moles, but she said I was safer on the desert floor where I would learn to stand alone. I learned to step on cactus thorns and never feel them. Shadows drifted around us. Now I pick at my skin, my face peeled by the consuming sun. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Stuart. This has been lovely. Uh, Okay. Self-Portrait as Lined Seahorse, as Coronet, as the Sun, on page 59. I am the speckled sun pillaring above me. I am a coronet tilted back. Dashes of glint reflect my succulent black eyes. I am the sun signifying morning beneath the sea. I make rituals to mark the day, a brief pirouette, a renewal of vows to my heat. My rays thicken and tangle around me. I sink to the ocean floor. Sometimes I change from red to canary yellow while my tunnel snout searches for food through teased seagrass. I have soft teeth. At dusk, drowsy, I scoop myself into my lip-colored anchor. I am the whelk. I am the sea, which is a blouse for time. And my crystal body knows this. My spine rings like a sequoia, like a wick to the surface, to the wetland, to the spillage and held breath, to the gold grease covering my language. I am my language. To my father inside my mother's arched back, moving like the tide until his milky flood packs into her. To their bodies entwined on shag carpet. To my mother alone, allowing me to grow me. I am a tree rooted to the side of a cliff. I make myself from within her, like God cantilevered the whole earth on gravity.
0: You do more I think with this book than just present poems that uses language to present meanings and interpretations and ways of seeing the world because it, it also struck me that the way you structure each poem is really um, is really uh, quite provocative in some ways it's quite different I think than many collections of poetry that that I've read. So use of line breaks and spacing, um, punctuation, and an example that I felt was um, particularly powerful and a little troubling was the poem Childhood because it recounts a a trauma, Mm -hmm. a retelling of a trauma. And the poem is fairly tight at the top, but it begins to break apart as you move down the lines. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more space between the words and those gaps, and they represent much more than just the words themselves. Mm -hmm. I wonder, maybe my, my question is, how much effort did you put into you know, the use of that kind of form and structure compared to, you know, actually finding the words to express what you wanted to say.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm thinking about the the drums a lot right now because my second book project is a, is called Drum, and I, I was just talking to my dear friend and collaborator um, about how, you know, poetry was inscribed in rhythm before it was in, in, on, inscribed on the page. Um, and I think that I, I don't know how this will manifest in my career, but needing to push poetry off of the page, whatever that means, if that's a sonic experience. I, I did a intertextual sonic art installation a couple years ago, and I really loved that. I still come back to the page a lot, but I think those spaces are, are an attempt yeah, or an attempt at what you say. There's a lot there. Um, and I, I'm i always looking for space. I I'm, You know, I, I experienced a fair amount of trauma in my life, um, and I am also a very clinically diagnosed anxious person. <laughs> um, and so any place where I can slow myself down, where I can give myself more time to think through what it is that's happening um, – is really important to me and becomes more and more important to me as I, as I get older. And so I think all those spaces are me trying to slow everything down, both that has happened in the past and now. The poem Childhood is really interesting because I didn't realize this. My good friend and poet Jordan Charlton, who's an amazing poet, he first looked at this poem. He um, has family in Georgia too, and he looked at it and he said, Katie, this poem is in the shape of Georgia. And I was like, oh, my God, like, and I did not intend that. Um, But then when I saw it, I was like, "Okay, how can I accentuate some of the places, you know, like there were already spaces, but I made them a little bit bigger. Um, If you were to, like, really see this poem as Georgia, you know, Atlanta is like where the the space between dad and after, which sounds a little bit corny when I talk about it head on like that. But. It wasn't surprising to me and it didn't feel like magic when he realized that because I do think poetry is like this distillation of time and space. Like this is a poetry is always about geography and about cultural context. So um, sonnets are always trying to hold so much more than they really can.
0: I like how you referenced trying to find space for yourself to breathe Uh, to come to terms with yourself and your reactions and the world. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about the book structure overall, how you organize the poems. It seemed to me that the middle section is called exaltation. And when I arrived there and then moved through it and on, the word that came to me was exhalation. Hmm. And it occurred to me that there is a rhythm, as you're describing it, a rhythm to the book overall, not just the poems within it. So I'm curious, how did you go about organizing the particular pieces?
1: Yeah, it was difficult. um, And I wouldn't have been able to arrive at this final form without the help of Hope Wabuke, who's a poet and teacher at UNL. Um, She just had two incredible books come out. But I was really stuck on chronology. Um, I, you know, I moved from Las Vegas or from Atlanta to Las Vegas when I was nine. And there's this clear, even mythic movement from east to west in my mind. And I originally I the book was like structured with that movement in mind. Um, But linearity is not a thing that poetry is interested in and that I'm I'm not interested in, in it either. But I couldn't get my head like out of that that structure. So Hope had me lay out all my poems and label them, um, kind of give each one a theme, you know, like dad poems, mom poems, divorce poems, desire poems, I think had like six themes. And I labeled each poem a different color um, based on the theme. And then I, I had those colors on sticky notes with like the title of the poem on that sticky note. And then I, I, knew, I, I, was, I knew exaltation was gonna be in the middle and so the other four sections, I w- I wanted sections. I don't really know why. Um, and I laid those colored sticky notes in an order that just looked pretty to me. Like I took all, you know, I I I had I didn't even have the poems. I just had the titles of the poems. And that that process of just working visually um, and landing on okay, I like this many blues over here and this many pinks over here. Um, we landed on this and then i sent it out and within a couple months it got picked up so yeah i I just needed to remove myself from it um because we like i think our minds naturally want chronology they want a certain kind of linear order like i said and and that's not how we experience feeling so uh, or not how i do anyway
0: you're also so much more creatively than a poet And I say that because clearly you're a superb poet, and I know you're continuing to work on poetry projects. But you mentioned that you studied Spanish and theology. You also mentioned uh, an art installation, a sonic experience that I think was in Lincoln called Yellow Silence.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Why are you a poet? Why do you write? And secondly, what else is there to your creativity and your artistic interests?
1: Yeah, I've asked myself this question recently, like, why do I come back to the poem? I don't know. I I started taking Spanish when I was very young, and it was a practical thing. Like, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, but but I, but that was always the plan. Like, my mom was like, "You're going most interested in this very basic idea that we can make sounds with our mouths that are different and mean the same thing." Or that, but I loved it too. So it wasn't like she was. Fighting me on that, it was just like great. You love this thing that's very practical. I was always most interested in this very basic idea that we can make sounds with our mouths that are different and mean the same thing. The order of a sentence, syntax, which is just means order, uh, can can entirely change a culture and how a person exists in that culture. So, I think I come back to to the page and to poems because. Language um, baffles me, and everything else is kind of like my ADHD brain. And I say that as someone who actually does have ADHD, like I need to do all these other things to eventually come back to the thing that's most important. Um, and I really like collaborating with people sometimes, sometimes. Uh, so I, yeah, A Yellow Silence was a collaborative project. Um, and I'm I'm a literary translator and I'm working with a poet, Nicole Cecilia Delgado, who I really love. And, yeah, so that collaboration is important to me. Um, Yeah, I don't believe in the poet just sitting down by themselves every day typing it out. My process is much more sporadic. And I'm learning to embrace that more.
0: When did you realize then that you are a poet? Did you write creatively when you were... Younger,
1: yeah. I was always writing and doing little things on paper, and I was also a girl in the eighties and the nineties. So uh, we were funneled into being more language people than math people. Um, yeah, and I always loved to write. I didn't. I didn't love to read as much as I liked to write. And I'm. I, I love to read now, but I'm a slow reader, and. Um, it takes me time. Comprehension is hard for me. I mean, executive function with ADHD is real. It's, it's hard to get through things sometimes. So I need a lot of space and time to read. Um, but I think in college, when I, when I was studying Spanish and yeah, I don't know. School, like college was a place I had to go to get a job. I also was dealing with a lot right out of high school. I'm not sure I got quiet enough really until after my divorce to be like, okay, my feet are on the ground and this is who I am. But um, but I would say in college I was like, wait, I want to I wanna write. I want to – I love this stuff. There's, But I didn't know – my mom didn't know what an MFA was. Like my, my mom didn't – we didn't know you could go to school to be a poet. Um and there were some things in college that made me privy to that stuff. But it wasn't until I, I graduated college in 2010, and then I taught Spanish for three years. And it wasn't until after teaching high school Spanish, I was super not happy and stressed that I took a poetry class at a community college that my former partner encouraged me to take. And that teacher, Joe Hoppy was like, there's a whole world that you could partake in. And I was like, okay, I'm ready because I don't want to teach high school.
0: So let's talk a little bit then about what people choose to value. And I don't know that typically in society poetry is in that top five list. What is it like to be a poet who has written some astonishing work that will continue writing and perhaps is not going to receive the broader acclaim that the work deserves.
1: I mean, I'm just I'm just finding my spot in the long tradition of poets who have had strange jobs to make ends meet. I don't know, it's a lot of hustle. You know, right now I'm applying to jobs, I'm finishing my last year as a PhD student. It's very overwhelming. I mean, I've supported myself pretty much all on my own since I was 18 but with help from my mom like I know in the back of my mind if there's an emergency my mom and her partner are going to be there to support me but yeah it feels overwhelming it's just there's no I've worked so hard and there's no surefire and I'm one of many who have worked very hard Uh, we all deserve it and we all might not get it so yeah I think it feels sometimes like well I wish I knew more about how to write code, or like have some job that would pay me a lot of money. Um, but one day at a time.
0: Could we talk just a little bit about dancing?
1: Yes, let's talk about dancing. <laughs> uh,
0: there is a poem. Well, clearly, your um, there's inspiration from your mother, who clearly um, just from reading the work. It, was a, a an athletic gifted talented dancer herself.
1: Yeah, just an athlete in general and always dancing. I mean, there's the there's the dancing here and but she was all like she taught aerobics my whole life, like not my whole life, but a lot of my childhood and so we were always we we're always moving, always moving around. Music was everywhere. Yeah.
0: So is it still an intrinsic part of your life?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think ultimately if I could quit poetry to become a professional ballerina tomorrow, or, or a professional hip hop dancer. Like if someone gave me that option and would be like, "You're fully trained and you can pay all your bills, I, I might give up poetry to dance, maybe. Um, I love dancing. I, I you know, I spent a lot of time in Ecuador and in Mexico and or there are cultures within those cultures where dancing is a little bit more of a central experience um, for people across generations and people dance together a lot more um, and I love that I love that so much um, yeah and the you know the body in motion is not unlike poetry when you watch I remember I took myself to the ballet to see Misty Copeland when she came to Lincoln right after my divorce and I'd never been to the ballet and I just thought like oh my gosh what is happening with the human body this is so beautiful yeah and music I'm, I always have music on the background when I'm working and anytime I can can shake my booty I'm there
0: <laughs> My guest today has been the poet Katie Maya. Katie, again, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Stuart. This was so lovely and I appreciate your questions and your close reading.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.
1: Do you like to dance Stuart?
0: Well as soon as we go off air here we're we're going to get get some sounds on it.